what we do here is go back, 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 back. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered Tips, a podcast where myself, Kath, and my friend Rachel share in the struggles and successes of PhD life, as well as discussing a topic relevant to PhD life in a bit more depth. And this week, um, we're really excited to be having a chat all about kind of academic career paths um, and what it's like to be a first-gen academic with our special guest, Joe. Um, but first, let's find out uh, how some things are going. So, um, Rachel, what have you kind of been up to in the last month? Um, and how are you feeling about it? Um, <laughs> it's gone by super fast. Uh, yeah, just been been pl- planning experiments, starting to starting them. You know, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, uh, trying things that haven't worked. Yeah, uh, I've sort of been, been I've been doing things, and I think I've sort of got to a point where I kind of need to get you know some a bit more advice from my from my co-supervisor and everything um and stuff yeah. like that just to kind of make some make some further progress like it feels like I've come to the junction if you know what I mean and like uh I need to sort of know where to go from here oh Rachel baby Rachel there's so many junctions <laughs> I'm sure there'll be many many more I'm <laughs> sure there'll be many many more yeah I appreciate that <laughs> No, I get what you mean there. 100% get what you mean. You're at a junction where you need some advice. Um, How about you? So tell me more about your your last month. Uh, generally this month, uh, stuff at the bench has been kind of dismal. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good place. An apt word. An apt word, yeah. Yeah. I've just com- hit a complete wall uh, with the sight off and I cannot get it to work. I don't know why I can't get it to work. No one else knows why I can't get it to work. Um, I And I, I also have got nothing left that I can change in the protocol or adapt to get it to work. So I feel a bit stuck and like I'm at a bit of a crossroads like you, Rachel, where I just need a bit more advice. Yeah. Yeah. One of the many more that I will have. So like, like you were just saying. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, it's difficult when you when you just feel like yeah, when uh, you're like oh, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the yeah, that feeling is yeah. But you know, you just carry on, don't you? All you can do is kind of do the next logical thing, um, and yeah, ask for advice when you need it. Yeah, I just feel like I don't know what the next logical thing is. Yeah, I, that's why you need to ask for advice. Yeah, there's um like there's some hard lines in the sand. Like we're not going to re-optimize the antibodies because that would just take exhausting yeah. amounts of time that I don't have. Um, yeah, so I think if that if the antibodies are the thing that is actually the issue, then we we might just abandon the site altogether, um, which would be kind of devastating because I spent a whole year trying to get it to work. So <laughs> like, fingers crossed that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. I mean, fingers crossed, but also yeah. you have other options if you do have to, have to bin it. I don't really know what the other options are currently, but I'm sure there are options floating around in my PI's head. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a team effort, you know, like you're not, mm. it's not you figuring it out yourself. 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, just re- remember that. And like, I don't know. Yeah, even if you do have to bin it, I'm sure that'll be like sad and tough because, yeah, you've been working really hard to get it to work. But, um, yeah, yeah. You you might you never know you never know what will happen when you try something yeah. else or like when if you're doing something if you end up doing something different. Um, so yeah, exactly. Like so few people, um, even in my cohort, are doing the projects that they originally set out to do. Um, mm. So it's like completely reasonable to like change tact. It's just I feel like the point I'm at like when I was talking about it with my PI, he was kind of saying like, well, usually we'd reach this point kind of, you know, kind of in maybe like towards the beginning of the second year. But because I missed out on like six, seven months of lab time in my first year, but like reaching this point almost a year late. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, you can't really compare yourself to. No. There's always that thing where actually that whole of like, yeah, you you've got to look at how, like you've like you might you've learned loads in this last year despite you know yeah. not feeling like you've got go anywhere. <laughs> you yeah. still learned lots. That's you know there's stuff mm-hmm. this that you've done this year that you wouldn't have been able to do last year and everything. So. Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, and I was also just thinking about the fact that no one publishes stuff that doesn't work. So like, yeah, there are very few phosphocytal papers out there, but like how many projects do you reckon there have been that have tried it and abandoned it? Um, oh, probably loads. Yeah. Do you have anything else you wanted to update people on? <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess in terms of, I realised that I, I, I'm, I'm sort of not that great at planning stuff I mean that's partly why I chose my project to kind of I was aware that it was a weakness of mine um mm. and you know I think with, with site off and with these runs like you can't afford to be not organized right like you can't afford to yeah. be scrambling around like getting yeah, antibodies yeah. together last minute or whatever um so yeah. I think I um like at the state at this stage because I'm just trying things out, it doesn't necessarily matter. But in terms of like running an experiment, mm-hmm. if you want reliable results, right, you have to you have to be getting it right in terms of you know just concentrations and everything. And um, yeah. I'm better than I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel you. Um, yeah, experiment planning is really hard. Like I'm definitely better at it than I was a year ago, but I still don't feel confident that I've like thought about all the controls I need and made sure everything is in stock. Um, one of the tips I got from a student that's now left from my lab is to like put like put time in your like calendar that says like, go check X is in the fridge. Uh, yeah, no, I genuinely, I can see that. Yeah, you need to like set yourself reminders to the really silly things. Yeah, especially for stuff that like, you know, you might need to thaw overnight or um, if, if it's not there and or you need to order it in and you know it's going to, like, the lead time is a stupid amount right now. So, yeah, like, put, putting time in your calendar when you're going to go and check various, like, important reagents are actually in stock when you're planning an experiment is really useful. 
Well, I'm glad you're getting better to grips with planning. I think it is... Yeah, very, very slowly. Yeah, but it's a whole PhD and beyond long journey. I always get um, like someone else in my lab to look it over just to like sanity check if you can find someone that's willing to just give you like 10 minutes of their time. Um, it's um, it's far better to go to someone with a protocol that you've written and said, look, I've, I've done this. Can you yeah. look over it and check these one, two things? Then I'm being like, can I have some help? Oh, yeah, 100%. Go with an experiment. Well, I guess my suggestion is like, Go with a go with a plan, uh, <laughs> rather than like go with something rather than nothing. And at least if you have something, then that can be yeah, you, know, you can be steered in the right direction. Whereas if you sort of don't have anything, then yeah, uh, then there's sort of much much less that people can do to help because they have to work out everything the question you know, is. from scratch, which is much harder for someone yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Especially someone who's not like you know your project the best. Like, don't ever forget that because you are the best person to design experiments for your project. But having a second pair of eyes for like and to ask you key prompting questions to make sure you understand what you're doing, kind of invaluable. Okay, so uh, we're really excited today to be welcoming our second guest to the podcast. So I'm going to let her introduce herself. So guest, introduce yourself. Hi, um, I'm Jo, um, Dr. Joanna Kelly. Um, I'm a senior scientific officer in Cath's lab. I've yeah. been in research for almost a decade now, eight of those in academic labs. And so my current role as a senior scientific officer, I'm part part lab based with some um, lab management responsibilities. And I'm just, I'm currently working on a drug development project, looking at a biologically relevant drug development model. This is very exciting to have you on because you're clearly a real life adult scientist, whereas <laughs> I like to think of myself as an adolescent scientist. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you describe yourself, Rachel. <laughs> um, but um, kind of thinking back to uh, back a decade when you first got involved, what made you initially interested in kind of pursuing science um, at an undergraduate level and then further on? Um, what do you think it was about science? I think even further back, even when I was really little, I always was so super curious about how things worked. Like I had to know what made things tick, why things did what they did. And obviously that leads very neatly into science. And mm -hmm. like I went through a range of careers. I wanted to be a vet for a while and then a marine biologist. And then I kind of settled on science teacher because yeah. I didn't realize <laughs> that I could be a scientist. <laughs> and I had this absolutely fantastic biology teacher in high school. And he went out of his way lending me um, books about genetics and things just extra outside of the syllabus stuff that we were doing. And I just loved it all. And one day he just went, Oh, Joe, why don't you do the science? Like, what? <laughs> I, I like to think I'm a relatively intelligent <laughs> person, but I had not considered it was a career I could do. And I was just, I just sort of stood there and was like, huh, I can do that. And that kind of kicked off the whole signing up for, um, to do science at university really. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really that's really cool to hear. 
I think uh, Rachel and I think curiosity is very important in science. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, I think it's really, yeah, so it's cool to hear that that's kind of the thing that first caught your interest about it. Um, so you started doing biology as an undergrad. You are also a Manchester alum. Uh, so <laughs> um, kind of at what point uh, during your undergraduate degree did you kind of realise that you wanted to do a PhD? So I did a sandwich course at uni. So I had my first two years in lectures, a third place, year at placement and then a final year back at uni. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a position at the then Patterson for my undergrad placement. And I was there for about 15 months. And that just massively solidified that I loved the lab. So I'd, I'd always quite enjoyed the theory. I really loved my degree. I found it really fascinating. But yeah, spending 15 months in a research lab, I was just like, yep, yep, this, I, I, I like this. I want to do more of this. Um, and so just because I really enjoyed what I was doing. So, yep, I want to do a PhD. Uh, it was quite a nice set mm. setting thing. It was a, yeah, I got to get that experience, which was brilliant as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, Rachel and I both had like lab experience before starting a PhD. I think for me, my placement year as well, I did a summer year, was kind of like, I was like going into that year thinking, I think I want to do a PhD, but I'm going to really decide in this year if it's something for me. Um, I don't know, how did your kind of previous lab experience help influence your choice, Rachel? Do you- um, I think it solidified that I quite liked being in the lab and I kind mm. of liked, liked the lab uh, environment for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I kind of, it was definitely when I realised that I, quite liked asking questions I don't know like it definitely struck me that like to do an experiment you right you have to ask a question um and try and test that so I think I know I think that that I remember like being quite struck by that um and kind of liking liking that aspect of stuff um Mm -hmm. yeah I think I was very fortunate to meet meet really really nice people along the way as well who were fun to work with um yeah so it made me also kind of yeah, hopefully keep on trying to find some nice people to work with. <laughs> yeah. You've just reminded me of something that happened in my um, my placement year. And mm-hmm. it was, I can't quite remember what it was I saw in my experiment. So I was running this experiment and I got a result and I just sat there. I was like, huh, nobody else knows this. This is knowledge that I know. This is knowledge I've made. And that was just such a brilliant moment. And I was like, oh, this is a good feeling. Yeah. yeah 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 that's so true um yeah actually Rachel you touched on just having good people around you in those like early experiences like were there any kind of scientists in that really early part of your decision making Jay that kind of inspired you um to kind of want to continue in the career I've been quite fortunate at every single stage there's been someone so like I said in my high school I had uh, Mr. Keg, who massively inspired me. Great name. Um, he, he, fantastic teacher. Um, and then through throughout um, university, I had a really good academic advisor. 
who was quite open. And I think he did a lot of actual on the research side. And yeah, he gave me a lot of brilliant advice. Um, in my placement year, I met so many different types of scientists as well. So my boss was just a genius. And then there were lovely people I worked with who were super supportive and showed, like, showed me how to do things <laughs> and like, made sure I developed and kept enjoying what I was doing. And then I hit my PhD and again, had two brilliant postdocs that I worked closely with and a fantastic team and a really enthusiastic boss. And I've managed to be around a lot of very enthusiastic people. And when people love what they do, it's really easy to get caught up in that whirlwind of passion for your work. Mm. See, I've been very fortunate. So I can't really pinpoint a single person because I've fortunate, I've been fortunate enough to have multiple people at each stage. Yeah, no, that's really great to hear. I mean, you mentioned having two really good postdocs in your PhD. Like, why didn't you like just tell us a bit more about your PhD? Like, what was it in? So I did my PhD down at the London Research Institute, which later became the Crick. Uh, and the lab I was working in was looking at cell cycle control and DNA damage checkpoints and um, protein kinase signaling in these sort of DNA damage checkpoints. Um, and yeah, it was really fantastic. And so I started the project um, based on the back end of a work that one of the postdocs who was currently in the lab had been running. And so she took me under her wing, showed me all the techniques she was using and like just really taught me quite well how to think and crucially taught me what incubation steps were massively crucial in terms of timing and which ones you could <laughs> which ones you could have lunch through like it was I got that quite nice introduction into a lab of some things some things are really really critical and some things you can breathe that's some essential knowledge when can I have lunch <laughs> yeah then then um she actually left about a year and a half into my PhD I was also working with another postdoc because we were working in two different aspects so I was at um, the metaphase anaphase transition and she was working at cytokinesis and we were both getting really similar things like proteins popping up and phosphorylation sites on these proteins were popping up in both of our sets of work we're like hmm, are we on the same pathway here and so we, we then started working quite closely together and it did turn out that the cleavage event that I was seeing at my stage of this metaphase anaphase transition was triggering a pathway that led to the particular phosphorylation switch in hair protein. And yeah, so it was a nice story came together. That's fascinating. <laughs> That's really it's cool. Good, it's, it's good to pay attention in your lab meetings and rarely talk to all of your colleagues. <laughs> it's so funny hearing you talk about how your first postdoc like just showed you the ropes because it definitely felt like you did that for me I was like you're like here's how we do everything <laughs> don't panic Joe still needs to teach me how to think because a lot I I am not strong in experimental design we have discussed this on the podcast before but Joe is very strong in that so <laughs> that, that is one of my major strengths I feel like I get a little bit handheld through <laughs> it's, it's the it's the role of a postdoc it's what we do we we had all of that help to get us to where we are mm. and then it's it's just the cycle yeah mm. it's always that kind of thing um that yeah like, I think I know like well my experience is yeah the 
peer shooting is definitely like or like remembering those moments where like someone's really had some input helped me out and just kind of thinking like I hope I remember that when you know hopefully I'm in a position to pay it forward basically yeah that's what that's what I yeah yeah hopefully I'll be able to do that in the future <laughs> but yeah um, I just wanted to touch back on something you said when you were at school you didn't realise that you could be the one doing the science um, and I was just wondering how much you feel like that comes down to you being a first generation student and a first generation academic um, like what were some of the specific challenges you faced um, kind of in going on this journey and like applying for PhDs and further study um, that kind of you think came from maybe being in that kind of first gen category um so yeah like you say I'm I'm the first in my family to go to university so I think my mum left school before she was 16 I don't think my mum or dad had O-levels my dad did an apprenticeship so I think he left at about 14 15 um and then I have three older siblings who two of which went to sixth form um so yeah it's not university was a bit of a new one and I think being the youngest it was especially um, a bit nerve wracking because all the way through my life applying for high schools and things I had siblings who'd been through it all and I'd seen all of that and I knew what sitting exams in high school was like because I'd seen it and then I suddenly had that comfort taken away because nobody in my family knew what we were doing UCAS was a word that they'd never heard of um, mm. and yeah just higher education in general wasn't something that my parents understood they were really supportive um, but it was, I was on my own. They didn't get it. Um, mm -hmm. And almost even that thing of just not getting a job that would then pay it. Then before you enter into the work world and start being able to support yourself, you've then got this extra bit of time where you're just racking up debt. My mum saw it was just racking up debt and it terrified us. She was so scared when I said I was going to go do a degree because she just saw me getting into a load of debt. And so I think there were those sort of, issues and as I touched on I didn't know I could be because nobody in my world was an academic I thought that was for you know the smart people in the south <laughs> as ridiculous yeah. as ridiculous as that sounds the context Joe is from Liverpool <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm from Liverpool and it's just like I, I didn't go to Eton I can't go do these that's not my world I didn't know anyone for that mm -hmm. who, who could give me that insight and I guess as well, you ask around when you're thinking of doing things, you speak to the people in your life who do it and just to see what it's about. And I didn't have anyone that I could do that with. Um, yeah. When I got to university, that did change quite a bit because then I had my advisors and suddenly I was thrown into this world where there were scientists mm. um, and they existed as people that were real people. <laughs> in my life and I could speak to them and get their advice on things. But yeah, it was, it was a little bit scary entering into the world of higher education, just mm. completely naively. Yeah. yeah. Did you find it like, um, I don't know, like sort of, yeah. How did you find kind of that? Yeah. That transition or like kind of getting used to kind of navigating like the world where like, Oh, there's kind of, yeah just kind of like knowing who to go to to ask for advice or, or like just yeah just navigating it in general like did you find that like it took a long time to get used to or was I it think, like 
I think in some ways it almost helped me because I knew so little. There wasn't anything comfortable. There was no comfortable mm. people I could go to. I just had to reach out. I had to go talk to my advise, my academic advisor. I had to go speak to people because there wasn't anyone there comfortable for me to just talk to. So yeah, yeah. I think in a way it, it pushed me to get more comfortable talking to senior scientists. That's actually super interesting. Yeah. Um, especially like coming from I know we come from multi-generational attendees of university I think I'm the fourth generation of my family to attend university (laughs) it's just stupid (laughs) extremely ridiculous but um, it's really interesting to hear that and I guess so your mum was afraid but uni meant like lots of debt so then what did she think when you're like I'm gonna do a PhD (laughs) and I'm gonna go do it in London and I'm not gonna be paid very much Uh, I think by that point she'd she'd got I was okay. Okay. So uh, I managed to um, support myself through uni. I did get um, grants and my mm. stuff, but I think after four years of taking care of myself as an undergrad, she wasn't too concerned about yeah. me being able to keep on doing. So I think I'd proven myself by that point. You know, I could stand on my own, even staying in um, study. That's really good um, to hear. I guess, did you, um, like you said, you felt like you were lacking in your network when you started your undergraduate. Um, did you feel like you were able to develop this, like a big enough network to help you make that transition into like further higher education? Yeah, I, I feel like I did. I don't know, again, if it was maybe because of my positioning. Yeah. Because, Man- well, you know, Manchester, there's you do actually get a lot of time to talk to your tutors and your yeah. lecturers. And so it was quite easy to build up a network there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know if it's the same in every university or if there's universities where you get less one-on-one time, but yeah, I found it was quite easy. I had to go out of my way, yeah. but it was there. And the, those sort of connections were there if you wanted to reach out and make them. I'm also just thinking like you're you're very good at networking at conferences now um, and I guess maybe those early skills of having to quickly and rapidly figure out what uh, higher education is aided in that process a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I reckon um, it definitely did. So I guess thinking kind of moving forward in your career that like you're doing your PhD um at what point did you start thinking about next steps um, and what those next steps might be? Uh, I was was kind of thinking about it from the very start. So I entered into a PhD thinking I wanted to do a postdoc. Um, And it really, I think, hit me that that was the right thing. Midway through my second year, I had a massive second year slump. So I had a really exciting observation in my first year of my PhD, started getting some data. And then it was like, oh, we've got this cool thing we want to look at. How do we look at it? And to second year slump where there was just no data because I was trying to get them all the um, experimental pathways in and find out what my readouts were going to be. Or, you know, all of that optimization that takes forever and quite oh often work. I, I know, <laughs> Kath, you, you can definitely, definitely sympathize with me. Hashtag relatable. <laughs> but yeah, I hit second year slump. Nothing was working. And I, think I was just sat there with my lab in the pub on a Friday. And 
it just been one of those weeks where I was like, I may as well have not come in this week and nothing could have been different except I wouldn't have wasted some money. Um, and there's just a little voice in my head that went, but you still love it though. So, oh yeah, I wouldn't trade it. And it was that little internal monologue when I'm sat there in, in the pub with my lab just going, this week's been hell. Wouldn't trade it though. This is where I want to be. And I was like, well, okay, I think I'm cut out for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was going bad. And I still, I wouldn't say I loved what I was doing that week, but I still wanted to be there. That's super cool, then. It's very admirable because I think Joe knows I fancy quitting almost every other day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't get me wrong. I did not love it all the time. But it's Mm -hmm. just that when I hate it, it's still worth it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah. If, if I can still want to do this when I feel this way about my project and nothing's working, maybe I can do a postdoc. It sounds really sweet, but I genuinely look for like people who have like a good kind of sense of humour. Because I just feel like if you don't laugh about stuff, like like you'll just end up like crying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that, I don't know, I think that helps when you have like a, yeah, a terrible, a terrible week and you've spent lots of money and wasted it (laughs) yeah essentially um i i do not envy students in your guys position who've had to go through a chunk of phd not being able to socialize because it is like you say that laughing is so crucial when you're not around people it often becomes hysterical and um (laughs) not not so fun but when you've got that support around you and you're socializing doing it it's it helps and yeah I don't envy people who've had to go through what you guys are doing right now I think it's much harder than a normal PhD which isn't a walk in the park anyway yeah because they're quite isolating and so Mm -hmm. then to be like forced to be isolated because just just broadly um (laughs) the situation has been challenging I think it's definitely been challenging for my whole cohort I don't know about yours Rachel but we just haven't gelled as a cohort in the way that the groups of others have I think, think the only thing that diff- was different about mine was just that uh, it didn't happen kind of like we started on Zoom and stuff. So I think we actually, um, I think I think that almost helped in a way, like the fact that we were already in it rather mm-hmm. than like sort of having the rug taken out from underneath us, you know, like six months in. I think, yeah, it was a slightly different situation for for mm-hmm. the, for me to be in but, um, compared to you. I think you're right though. I look forward to being doing a few more pub trips because like even the one we did when uh one of our members was leaving just was so nice and to catch up with other people and hear that everyone else is struggling. Cause I think sometimes I get in my head about I'm the only person who's struggling and actually that's so not true. But it doesn't really come out until you've all had at least half a pint. Um <laughs> kind of true, yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a little brief period out of the lab, didn't you, at the end of your PhD? And I remember you mentioning this to me as, as helping confirm your <laughs> suspicions about postdocing. <laughs> yeah, so at the end of my PhD, I had about three months where I wasn't working. So I'd finished up and I was waiting to get, well, I was trying to get a job. And then did get a job and was waiting. I went stir crazy. I missed the bench so much. I was just desperate to get back 
to the lab. <laughs> and so I was there enjoying myself up in Glasgow, getting to like explore this nice cool city, missing pipetting. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I was like, this is so sad, but at least I'm on the right career path. <laughs> So you go. It's a good, a good tip if you're on holiday and you miss pipetting. You know it, you're it, in the right job. It took me. It took me a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So obviously, your postdoc was in the lab I'm currently in. But um, I guess, yeah. What did you find different about doing a postdoc um, compared to a PhD? Um, I think the main thing is the drive of your project so it's just you're more given that responsibility for deciding the angle of your work and you don't have the same sort of first year reports and these kind of I know you don't have many milestones in a PhD but you have these kind of milestones to hit you don't have someone checking that you're doing things it is definitely on you no one's going to catch if you're not working and it's um it's that kind of thing of well your your boss We'll see you're not producing, but it's nobody is pushing you and making sure you progress. And that is, it's so much more self-driven. I will say, don't think a postdoc is not training. I moved from a very different type of lab to the lab I'm in now as my postdoc. And I was trained up brilliantly, often by PhD students. It's you're not meant to, as a postdoc, be this sudden expert you are still training, you're still a researcher and everyone's really happy to show you things. It's not like I got dropped and I was expected to be a scientist already. It was, I was eased into the lab, but yet there is more of that. You have to drive yourself. It's mm. yeah, your, your career and everything is on you. And I found for myself, it's my confidence. Um, as a PhD, I always felt like a child playing a little bit. And now I feel like I am I am a grown-up scientist, which is terrifying a lot of the time. But it's quite it's quite a nice feel. I feel like I am a real grown-up. <laughs> Brilliant way for a real grown-up to phrase that sentence, but hey. We'll... Yeah, I kind of think, yeah, it'd be super cool to after a PhD, like go and do go into a lab that does like quite different stuff or like just learn different techniques and everything and and kind of keep yeah keep keep learning different things basically um so it's cool that you did that and you found that really pretty good well that's how I picked my lab I went where are the holes in my cv so mm. I've, I've learned I've spent the last four years learning all of these things and I'm mm. I'm pretty good at them what do I need yeah. now to make myself a more well-rounded scientist where can I find these things? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of rings true. Like I was at a conference recently and one of the things mentioned in the Q and A session, like in the careers bit was like, if you're going to do a postdoc, choose something you're as interested in, but is as dissimilar as possible to your PhD. Um, and it's good to hear you say that because I think sometimes I worry. It's like, oh, what if I don't know this skill by the end of my PhD? Like, everyone's going to hire me. And it's like, that's kind of nonsense because they're not hiring you for your skill bank. They're like hiring you for how you think. Um, I, I feel if you wouldn't get hired because you lack a certain specific skill, it's either a really new lab that needs, because some new labs, they just need someone who can hit the ground running. Um or it's a PI that wants a technician. It's, mm -hmm. I think sometimes if 
it, like yeah it, it, I can see past the specific skills like, uh, to how you think much of it's about fit as well isn't it like yeah who's are you going to be a good fit for the with the lab mm-hmm. so yeah I guess that's important too because you kind of mentioned networking or we will mention networking a bit earlier um I guess do you have any kind of tips about how you went about reaching out and finding about about available positions I know you have a history of being a bit clairvoyant when it comes to available positions but <laughs> Uh, like if you've got any yeah, tips I've been quite I'm sure lucky. Interested. <laughs> so uh, with the clairvoyant I emailed my current boss four days before he was about to release two postdoc positions to ask him if he had any postdoc positions coming up <laughs> so oh wow I, I'm <laughs> nice. quite quite lucky with that one um so Unfortunately, you haven't had as much um, experience of conferences. So that's where I did a lot of my networking. Um, but if, if you have speakers in, or even if you have Zoom um, conferences or Zoom talks, and you can meet with them afterwards. So I know in our institute, there's some time to speak with the speakers after. If you're given those opportunities, take them, especially if you're interested in their work. Even if you're and I'd say even thinking now, even if you're not 100% sure you want to do a postdoc, talk to these people, They'll because then you might be on their radar. You might be a name, yeah. a face they recognize and just speak to them. Um, yeah. Is that one thing I always, I've, I've realized now as I'm older, um, is like the people, and the people, they've been through what we've been through. And imagine, like imagine now going and getting your own group and then someone coming up to you and going, I love your work. I'd like to work with you. Can you talk to me about what you do? That would be so good and so cool. And it's never going to be offensive. If you, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's only ever going to be a nice thing to hear that someone finds your work interesting. And so what I did is just approach people, ask them about their work, say who you are, what you're interested in. Even sometimes if you are looking at the looking for jobs, what you could bring to their lab. And just ask if you can meet them to talk to them. At the end of the day, the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll be too busy. You'll never hear back. Mm-hmm. Or you might have a really fascinating conversation with someone who doesn't have jobs at the moment. Or you might email someone who's putting jobs out or someone who's writing a grant and is thinking about getting postdoc positions. But yeah, just talk. Just email people. Mm-hmm. Reach out. And yeah, it's it's never going to be offensive to hear that someone is really interested in the work that you're putting your heart and soul into as a PI. Um, so yeah, I think, and I, I know people who are worried about bothering them, like don't spam. If you don't, if you're not hearing back, wait until there's like another opportunity to get in touch, but yeah, reach out, make, make that move because it, it one shows you're passionate and yeah, gets you on their radar as a scientist. Yeah, I definitely find it hard to view PIs as people. Like, I kind of view them as these like superstars at the end of papers that like give really amazing talks, and I'm always like, "Help! How are you? How are you doing this?" <laughs> Even when I meet them in coffees and lunches afterwards, I'm just like, I sometimes don't like. I get so nervous, I don't even ask a question. I just sit there. Um, they were all at one point a PhD student who forgot to add a key ingredient to a buffer and sat there wondering why their experiment wasn't doing. They, they've all been there. 
yeah, definitely. Like, just they're just people at the end of the day. Um, definitely helpful to remember that. Yeah, I don't. I often like really. I really struggle with questions. To be fair, like I always, I always chicken out and asking them. <laughs> I was afraid I'm going to sound stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I'm sounding super confident here. Kath will know this. I don't ask a lot of questions at the end of things. I get really in my own head. I'm much better at approaching after. I get, yes. I'm yeah, more yeah, conversational. Totally. I get very nervous yeah, to too. put my hand up and have all eyes on me asking a question. Um, and that's, I think that's something I've been trying to work on, but it's not easy to overcome, but I try and work around that by yeah, approaching afterwards, being in those conversational yeah. situations. And hopefully soon for you guys, we'll have in-person talks and conferences again, where that kind of style is also actually doable. Yeah, because yeah, sure. I've been hiding behind the... <laughs> I, I I don't I don't mind asking a question in like a Zoom chat, but then sometimes like the unexpected. Oh, Kath, do you want to ask a question? I'm like, no, no, I did not. That's why I put it in the chat. Like, <laughs> someone else ask it for me. <laughs> I don't want to show my face and attach it to this very silly question. But uh, <laughs> there are no stupid questions. We don't we don't subscribe to the stupid questions uh, theme over here, but. <laughs> There's only questions that stop you doing stupid things. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, very true. <laughs> um, so as you said at the beginning, you are now a senior scientific officer. So you're no longer a postdoc. Um, what is a senior scientific officer? Uh, I feel like some people might not know. <laughs> I'm still finding out, I think. So um, a senior scientific officer is you have more lab management stuff. So part of my day is going to be ordering and um, like doing stuff for the Institute move or um, yeah, more of that lab management side. So some stuff away from the bench, but then still some in bench. And it, de- it depends on the labs. I've been in labs where uh, scientific officers have done pretty much fully research with a bit of ordering or where they've, where an SO has been pretty much fully on the management side, doing the paperwork and the ordering and those things and barely any lab. Some do in vivo work, some do. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mix. It's sort of whatever fits the lab best, but it's that kind of lab management research combination tends to be the most average I've seen. And so what were some of the factors that went into your decision to switch to that kind of role? Um, from being a postdoc, I guess. I think it's it's quite easy to get on that track, isn't it? When you do your PhD, you do your postdoc, and then you either postdoc again post-doc or start a group. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would have loved to keep doing postdocs, but it's the you, you get to do one or two postdocs max, and then you go on to be a junior group leader. And, and I was just sat there, and I, was like, I, I just sort of took a look around and was like, whose day-to-day do I want? Like, I looked at what my boss was doing, and I was like, I that doesn't play to my strengths or what I enjoy. Mm. And so it's like, that's maybe, maybe I need to get off this ride here. I, I, that PhD postdoc group leader track. I was just like, I don't want to get to that end there. That's, that's not the type of work that suits me or I want. Um, and so it was a little bit of a hard decision because you get so ingrained in this is the track. 
this is what you do. You only stop doing that if you fail somehow or something. Mm. And I was like, but no, I don't. That's not where I want to be. And I just sat and looked at whose day to day I wanted. Unfortunately, you can't postdoc forever. That would have been an ideal for me. But you can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> and yeah, I, I was looking and the SOs were what I, what I liked. And I, in my PhD, especially I worked with some SOs I didn't work with some SOs. I knew some SOs who they just provided that continuity to the lab. And Mm -hmm. I like that. So they, well, I suppose we have it in our lab with um, our SO. She's really great for the continuity, the training up. And I like the idea of being that person who does help with the lab management side and can keep that running going on, but then still have some bench responsibilities. And so, yeah, I just realized that the group leader thing wasn't for me and then just started looking at well whose job do I want (laughs) like which which of these day-to-day um situations is the one I want to go for and yet the SO is one that stuck out to me because it combined the best of both worlds you got to get that slightly more senior role but you didn't step too far away from the bench it's really interesting to hear you phrase it as like it can feel a bit like failure if you step away from the PhD postdoc PI track um and I definitely like acutely feel that like when I when I'm like thinking about the future I'm just like well we've got the PhD so now I have to keep going and and actually to hear you say like oh it's an active decision to do something that is better suited to my skill set it's kind of encouraging to hear Um, I, I I have had people say to me oh well if you well did you not get your paper like that's not why I made this choice I didn't but that's not why I made this choice like it's yeah it's um yeah I've I've, I've had that I'm like no I didn't I didn't fail that's not the only like it that's not what happened here I'm like well I just think that's a very sort of Uh, old school toxic academia yeah Yeah, definitely Mm. Which is just really nice to hear, actually. And it's helpful, at least hopefully for us and our listeners, to hear, like, alternative options. Like, even if you've done a postdoc, um, mm-hmm. because I think you only ever see the job role in front of you. I think that's the only option. But I think something crazy, like only, like, 2 to 3% of people that get PhDs become group leaders. So... <laughs> you know the other 97 percent are doing something so yeah what made you be like oh that's not for me in terms of what aspects of the job i think a lot of it was the the writing it's um and that kind of the almost political landscape of being a pi because it is it is political it's you've got you, you almost end up a bit restrained in how you can express your creativity and your curiosity because it has to support a lab you need to almost yeah you need to be able to support a lab off what you're doing and the constant grant writing and those kind of things I just didn't think it suited me I you've seen me Kath when I have to sit and write for any length of time (laughs) (laughs) yeah and what one of my big joys is being is the practical side I'm a very practical person um and yeah I think just 
losing all of that would just take quite a bit of the joy out for me. Um, so just, I know you've only just started, um, but I guess, do you, could you explain maybe and talk a bit about like what the career path looks like on the SO track? Do you know much about it? Or um... Well, I think I'm in a pretty unusual position, I think, because quite often, SO, you know, you, you were saying they're the backbone and the more of this stable presence. I'm actually on a grant. Mm-hmm. So this position that I'm in currently is only for three years. Um, but it's actually quite good. It's a really good training and thing for me. So I'm going to have these three years where I can experience more of this particular job role, build up the skills and build up my CV and then hopefully um, enter into one of the more permanent positions as an SO. Um, I think at this point, I think I would like to stay in academia, but the skill set I'm developing is also quite useful for industry mm-hmm. because it has that research at the bench, but then the lab management side and that organizational and procedural experience that you get, which actually lends itself to industry as well. So like I said, Personally, I can see myself staying in academia, yeah. but it does really build up a skill set for industry if those sort of jobs come up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll see See at the end of my three years where I am um, and what's available. Because actually I've seen quite, when I was in between postdoc and SO, I was looking at some industry places and there is quite a lot of interesting things there now. So there is a lot of research kind of SO like roles in industry which is quite cool so, yeah. Yeah, you don't just mm-hmm. have to go to like just came with Pfizer there are mm-hmm. other biotechs around <laughs> well, I, I, don't know. I mean we work in a building with literally hundreds so um, yeah I guess um, given that this is an advice podcast for PhD students um, what's your like golden nugget of advice uh, that you want to give to people trying to get through their PhDs um, I feel we've touched on my, what my advice would be, and it is that everybody's struggling. So it always, it, I think you always feel like you're not doing well. And I've discussed this with you, Kath. You take yeah. people from university who tend to be overachievers and put them in this new environment where there aren't standardized exams, where you have that full readout of how successful you're being. And it's also an environment where failure is just a part of it. Things fail. You're trying new things. They don't always work first time. And that can feel so demoralizing because you don't have this readout of, I got this great, I did well. Mm. It's all so subjective. And everyone always feels like they're not doing enough. I say, well, I say everyone, <laughs> most people, there will, there will be some anomalies in it, but the vast majority of the bell curve feel like they are not doing brilliant all the time and it is just that you've had the measurable things taken away and failure introduced and it just it is a natural part of a PhD and so yeah just know that every like everyone's going through the same thing you aren't feeling incompetent on your own and my main thing would be hang out with your peers take net like opportunities to socialize with people in your lab, out of your lab, people in your year group, a good mix of people. If the social opportunities come up, take them because it is so nice to get that clarity that you do when you see that everybody 
is the same and you all start telling war stories about the lab and it's it's really useful for actually learning techniques so i've i've been stood uh, uh event at the crick chatting to someone from two labs down and was like oh my word i just can't get this antibody to work They're like, oh that's because that's this antibody none of those work we went through 20 here this is the this is the clone this is the company buy this it'll work it yeah. did it saved me months absolutely <laughs> months of trekking through the same antibodies they did because it wasn't a standard one that you'd have gone for and yeah. so it can be really useful mm. but it also just helps with that understanding of we're all in the same boat it's it's mm. not it, it's hard and yeah, yeah. and just try and enjoy yeah. it yeah that's really helpful uh, yeah. <laughs> i guess i have um one more question and mm-hmm. um, it's like when when you were looking for your your postdoc like what sort of things mattered to you in terms of who you chose to work with uh where etc i don't know like yeah just what kind of things mattered to you what were you kind of looking for so as i said briefly i was looking for things that would flesh out my cv things that i hadn't done and things I wanted to experience but also I think some of the main things that I look for in a a PI that I want to work with is enthusiasm enthusiasm about their project like when you talk to a PI you can tell the ones whose eyes light up when they just they're discussing what they're doing and an excited boss is going to be good for you developing your own excitement about your your work um and and them caring about the lab dynamic. So at an interview, a PI that would insist that I meet the entire lab, that was always really good. Um, just because lab dynamics important, it can make a rough week a better week if <laughs> if you've got people around you that are good and people who'll help you when you're having problems rather than just be like really focused on their own. So that's, I looked for not necessarily social labs, but labs that seem to get on and function as a healthy lab unit and yet excited PIs. Um, An interesting question. There needs to be something that grabs your curiosity in that lab. Like there needs to be something that they are looking at that you're like, ooh, I want to know how that, I want to know what that does. Yeah, yeah. Let, Let me look at that. Let me find out what's going on. Something that sparks that, ooh. I need to know. Mm. That inner curiosity you had mm. right back when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Joe. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Janet. So it's, it's been really cool. It's been really, yeah, it's been nice to, to chat. I feel we've both learned a lot from you and hopefully our listeners will have learned a lot as well. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? We'd also appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening. And while you're there, why not rate and review? It really helps other people find our podcast. Rachel and I are going to take a bit of a break from the podcast now, but we'll be back again with series two before you know it. So why not go back and listen to some of our older episodes while you wait? If you'd like to hear from us while we're on our break and hear first news of series two, follow us on Twitter at Unfiltered Tips. If you have any questions or comments, you can always email us at unfilteredtipspod at gmail.com. Thanks to Joe again for joining us, and thanks again for listening. Bye! What we do here is go back, 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 back.